Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is, uh, is John Mellencamp. If you would have told me that in 1982, when I was basically walking around wearing his t-shirts and going to the magazine store to see if there was uh, another article on him, I remember, John, when Cream Magazine did this article as American Fool was about to come out about the precipitous moment you were in in your life. Uh, I was such a I was so connected to, to your music and what, what you were doing. And uh, I kind of wouldn't believe that I'd, I'd end up talking to you. So uh, thanks so much for, for doing this. Well, uh, that only tells me one thing, that you must have been as foolish as me. <laughs> yeah, man, that ain't the half of it. Uh, really and truly. And folks who are listening, if you hear my voice, I was diagnosed, I have COVID, but uh, we're going to just power through because John wouldn't let some fucking COVID uh, test stop him from performing. Uh, John, man, I think, you know, you're, you've never made a bad album. You're one of the few artists that I make it a point. When you put a record out, I carve out the time and I listen to it in proper conditions no matter what and i truly have since i was 15 or 16 years old well i think he'd probably i, I think he'd probably get an argument from some people about that but thank you for the compliment <laughs> well yeah i'm saying i guess since uh since uh, since the real albums that you consider your albums but i even want to talk about before that because they're great songs throughout um and don't worry i'm not gonna like sit here and blow smoke i have a lot of real questions about how and why you do what you do but the truth is that you're an artist who's always been of serious purpose, where the records have always had serious purpose and they, re they re require, I think, someone really listening. And I had thought the late career masterpiece was plain spoken, but that turns out to have been a warm up for Strictly a One-Eyed Jack, a new record, which folks, if you're listening, come for the Bruce duets, but stay because this album to me is like the closest thing to a modern folk blues album john it it reminds me of world gone wrong and good as i've been to you except these are all original records what what were you listening to over the last few years were you listening to mississippi sheik's records were you listening to old bob records like what was in your head uh, i've always listened to those records uh so you know uh, i don't think that um i i don't think that that uh uh, was the entire inspiration. Uh, with this record, uh, uh, all these songs were just kind of sent to me. And as I, I didn't realize that uh, until about the third or fourth song that uh, all the songs were being sent to me by the same person. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so the songs, uh, like I didn't really sit down to think I'm going to write a song called uh, I Always Lie to Strangers. Uh, you know, right. it, it just kind of came to me and came out in what some people would call inspiration, but uh, I call it, uh, thank you for sending me this song, whoever you are. And after that record was done, I just looked at the guys in the band and I go, you know, I think John Houston sent me these songs. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, great filmmaker and definitely, definitely um, covered uh, this terrain in his, in his work, no doubt about it. Uh, and yeah, the existential dread is there even in his acting performances, right? 
Uh, so it's yeah. always, always there with John Huston. See, but, right. but hearing what, what you just said about, you know, feeling like, like you kind of received these songs, they do have a, a tremendous thematic unity. And, and I know from reading about you, you know, I read the biography that was written this year, I think with your cooperation. And yeah. it seems like in the, in the early days, you really would struggle to craft these songs, to write these songs and work them and work them until you felt you had them. And so did this feel different than that? Or are you a, a, at a stage now where they, they, the kind of effort is different that's required to bring them to kind of this level of fruition? Well, I, uh, when I was younger, you know, I was a barroom singer. It never dawned on me to write songs. I just, you know, since I was 12 years old, 13 years old, I've been singing in bars and, and, uh, you know, when I got my first record deal, it was quite by accident. And then, uh, when they suggested that I write songs, I went, Whoa, there's so many songs already that I couldn't possibly sing all of them. Why do I need to write songs? I'm just a singer. So I really kind of grew up in public with my songwriting. And when I was younger, to answer your question, I was in my own way all the time. And I would labor over stuff and work on stuff and then rewrite stuff. And I thought that was the way I had to do it. And uh, uh, But as time went by, uh, I realized that the best stuff I wrote was the best stuff I wrote was when I didn't try, you know, I just didn't, I just quit trying and, uh, you know, to craft a song, uh, I just let the songs lead me, uh, in the same way I do with my paintings. I, I don't try to, you know, I have a vague notion maybe with a painting, but I, I let the painting take me where it wants to go. And now uh, over the last, 10, 15 years. I just let the songs go where they want to go. I don't edit. I, I get out of my own way. And uh, I have found that the, the results are much better when I just listen to who, you know, whatever's sending me to it, take the song where it wants to go uh, and have faith that, that if it doesn't work out, there'll always be another song because, you know, inspiration is everywhere. So, and you never know, uh, you know, what's going to strike you. But did I sit down to, to, to make this record this way? No, I absolutely did. Absolutely did not. Whereas you talked about American Fool, we worked, you know, forever on those songs. I mean, you know, yeah, of course. We, we didn't have a fucking idea what we were doing, you know, <laughs> just uh, we're young kids you know, with a little bit of money and in the studio and, you know, there, we really weren't that focused. I mean, I, we were in the studio with American Fool, I think for like eight weeks down in Miami. Right. And we, and we had three songs set. <laughs> right. You were obsessed though, right? I mean, when I read the book and, and knowing what I remember of the, of, of who you were, it does seem like you were obsessed with, somehow getting your sense of what was the bullshit of the world on on tape 
and communicating what you wanted to communicate. It just seems to me like you just didn't know how to as well as you do now. Well, and that's that, that's a that's a, a proper observation. I, I didn't know how to. Um, not that I know how to now that much better, but uh, at least uh, making the records now is fun. Right. Uh, early on, it, it, it was a struggle. I mean, you know, I, when we recorded a song called Jack and Diane. Yes. I mean, that song took forever to uh, to to make. And I, then when it was done, I, I, I thought, oh, this the song will never. But, you know, here it is what, 40 years later, and the song is more popular now than it was when I when it came out, I mean, you know, it surprises me. I read somewhere where Jack and Diane have become the Frankie and Johnny of the rock generation. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was a good thing. Well, what's fascinating about Jack and Diane, John, and even American Dream, you know, but what's let's start with, with Jack and Diane is that is a song that has a lot of the themes that are at play on this record, but people didn't notice it because of the hand claps. People in their souls noticed it, but intellectually, I'm not sure people understood what you understood. And I, you know, you were, you were literally, you know, hold on to 16 as long as you can, because changes come around real soon. And, and that leads to death. And all the shit that you're talking about now, facing the weight, you know, not wanting to waste your time. To me, man, it's all in to try to hold on to that night with the chili dogs it's, and and that somewhere inside of you your your anxiety your the you know abuse your faith all of it the anger it feels like you were an old man at a young age even though you were writing songs that got on pop radio and uh i wonder if you were even aware of it what what you were trying to say in other words that there's not only a thematic unity on this album but a thematic unity throughout your whole career well, if you're saying I write the same four songs, you're probably ah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying. But though. I think that uh, I have always felt old, uh, even when I was a kid. Uh, and I think it's due to the operation that I had at birth. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, when you put a baby or a child or a human through that kind of uh, a stress, early on, I think it affects the soul somehow and affects uh, the thinking and the attitude and, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of guys on this earth walking around with, uh, with what I had and are still alive. It's just, you know, statistically it's impossible. Right. Uh, when I had, when I had my operation, when I was, you know, like, I think I was, six weeks old or not even that old. There were like four or five other kids with the same problem as having spina bifida as me. And all of those kids died on the operating table. And one other girl made it till she was 14. Mm. Uh, but you know, I never really, I mean, I made it. I mean, how fucking unbelievable is that? Yeah. When we're talking about 1951, that's when amazing. they used to operate with ether and uh, pinking shears and screwdrivers. Jesus Christ. You know. <laughs> yeah. Did, 
So it's pretty, it, you know, it's, I, I, I've always considered myself lucky. I'm, I'm already writing new songs and, uh, uh, I have a new song called luck is thinking you're lucky. Right. And, uh, Oh, that's great. And I, and, and I think that's the truth. Did it, do you think though that, um, it fueled a kind of duality that shows up in, in the records, which is both the fuck you that you always had, which is like, I've been through what I've been through. So I'm fearless. But at the same time, you're fearless that you've just always had an understanding of how fleeting it is because it was sort of drilled into you at, at such a young age. Uh, I've, uh, I've never really, uh, explored the idea of, uh, of being famous. Uh, nor did I care about it. Right. Nor did I care, really care about money. Um, I always wanted to get paid, of course, but those were never my ambitions. My, my fight was always with myself, uh, and not so much with what critics thought or being part of, uh, the rock and roll scene. I mean, I, I remember back in the eighties and the seventies and, you know, there was a clique of, of writers who championed this artist and that artist and, and, uh, you know, uh, they had a club and I wasn't in it. So, yeah. uh, I was very aware of that, but at the same time, didn't really care about it too much. Uh, I can't say that as a young man, it was like, wow, how come this guy gets this great review? And, and, uh, I think my record's better than that. And I don't get that review. Well, you know, it was just that I started out behind the eight ball with, uh, Johnny Cougar and, uh, <laughs> And it was a click, you know, Johnny Cougar was not as cool as the Beatles, you know, so just, I mean, even though the Beatles, if you think of that name, could it be any sillier, you know, the Beatles, really? Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, look, nobody said this world was fair. Nobody said that uh, there was going to be a free ride and, uh, and nobody said there was guaranteed happiness, no matter what, what came from it. And I realized that at a really young age that, you know, happiness is not guaranteed. You can do whatever, the, whatever you want or whatever they tell you to do uh, as a young person. And yeah. uh, it just never works out. I mean, you know, <laughs> now as, as an older, as an older gentleman, I, uh, I never plan any more than like 20, 30 minutes in advance, you know, because that's hilarious. Uh, I mean, that's hilarious. Plans, you know, making plans. It's like, you know, this interview. We had planned on doing it at a different time. Yes. Uh, but, of course, something came up and the plans changed. So you have to be able to, like, you know, accept that and roll with it. You know, I'm just using that as a very small example. But that's the way life treats you. And my grandfather used to say to me when I would complain about stuff not working out the way I had planned, uh, he would look at me and just smile and go, John, what'd you expect? <laughs> it's a really right. good, yeah, it's a really good. I mean, look, you know, you named your album, Nothing Matters and What If It Did. Uh, you know, so, and you were young, you were a young person when you named your album that. But, John, there's, there's sort of a, um, 
there's a sanguine quality to what you're saying now and a kind of acceptance. But it seems like it took you a long time to get to a place of acceptance. Like, as someone who's just listened so closely to your records for so long, it feels like a lot of the records, yeah, you were had a problem with yourself, but you also had a problem with, with the man, right? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not for everyone, you know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm just not for everyone. And, uh, I, uh, don't take orders very well. I mean, there was once upon a time, a long time ago, uh, they wanted me to be an actor, you know, and I was offered all these, I mean, I could name off 20 successful movies I was offered and I was just said, no. I'm I'm not taking right. my shirt off in this fucking movie. I know I'm not, you know, I'm, and I had the biggest agent in the world uh, at the time. And yeah. uh, he came to me with great movie parts, but I just wasn't interested in it. I was just like, no, I'm not doing that. And he would, he would like go, John, do you understand what you're passing on? I go, yeah, I got it. And that's the other thing too, uh, Brian, I've never been afraid to walk away from anything. Anything. Yeah, right. I'm not afraid to walk away from anything. I'm not afraid to walk. Do you ever see the movie HUD? Of course. Okay, you know when he slams the door and he kind of goes, ah. Yeah, that's you. I've always, I've always felt that was my future and, uh, and I have accepted that's what's going to happen. Because like I said, you know, and like if you read the book, you see that I'm not for everyone. Some of those guys, and, and by the way, I did not authorize that book. Uh, uh, my manager facilitated uh, some people for him to talk to. But other than not that, it. no. I didn't, uh, but the guy uh, had interviewed me a couple, three times for, uh, he was the editor of a magazine called Mojo, which was at the time a big rock magazine in Europe. And uh, that's how he had quotes for me. But and he's uh, he a had, guy. Yeah, and he clearly had a lot of. Um, you could tell he really cared that he he was in it for the right reasons. I felt like reading it, John. Like he was not trying to sell you out. He was trying to get the story right. It felt like. Yeah, but, and 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 he worked like three years on that thing. Yeah, you know, I, which I, I thought was quite. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, uh, I told Randy to tell him my manager once. I said. No, I'm like, John Mellencamp's just not that fucking interesting. You know, I'll tell you, you know what I was in the mind of? You know, you mentioned John Huston, you mentioned HUD. I, as I've been listening to the new album, I've been thinking about a different movie character, really a novel character, uh, Woodrow Call. You know, uh, from Lo from Lonesome Dove. And uh -huh. I've been thinking, you know, if you think about the kind of bleak landscape, interior and exterior that you're writing about on this album, you could see that if Woodrow Call ever made a record, this might be the record he'd have made. Well, that was written by Laird McMurtry. Yes. And uh, I, I only made, uh, I directed and made one movie and it was written by Larry and... Uh, uh, Larry was a good guy and a smart guy, and uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, 
the time that we spent together. And I learned a lot from Larry. Uh, Larry was uh, was just as simply, uh, strictly a one-eyed Jack himself. In other words, he wasn't yeah. afraid to say fuck you and no, and you know, uh, I'm not doing that. And you know, I would see him get notes, you know, in the margins from secretaries, and he would call me up and go, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm not changing this because some girl in some office thinks that I need, you know. And he was just, he was just a great guy. And uh, uh, and he has a son named James, who uh, yeah. I produced a couple records for. Uh, and James was the oldest soul I ever knew. At like 24, this guy, he's a great soul. Was ancient. He was ancient. I mean, and he wrote such beautiful songs, but, you know, he had, uh, he, you know, he just, he wasn't in the club either, you know. So. Well, he is now, though. I mean, I know he's not a big commercial artist, but, but you know, you discovered him, I'd say, and, and you did you produce that record and put him on the map, and he still has a career. Um, yeah, you know, he, he still does. Goes he still goes town to town with his guitar, playing his great songs and making up great, believable stories. But uh, the thing is, as I was thinking about McMurtry, I was thinking about Lonesome Dove in this record. You know, it's interesting. You, If I think about Troubled Man, and then I think about this record, and I think about Lie to Strangers and Wasted Days, and uh, you're not, and the, but I put that up against. So that's, there's this depiction of yourself, John, as a misanthropic guy. This is how you describe yourself with very little to offer and very little hope that anyone has anything to offer you. That's that's what you're presenting in the songs a lot of the time now. Yet, dude, you've done so much good in the world. You've tried to help so many people. Uh, and so you're obviously not a nihilist. You're not someone who has, well, I don't know, maybe you don't have hope, but you do the best you can anyway. Like, how do you personally reconcile those two sides of who you are? Meaning a guy who's like, look, motherfucker, I don't need you. And believe me, you don't need me. But on the other hand, you start farm aid, you begin the conversation about what we owe to our land and to our farmers. So how do you see that dichotomy, man? Well, I'm, a, I'm you know, I, I am, and we all are walking contradictions. We just are. Yep. And, uh, uh, you know, hip, I wrote it in one of my songs a long, long time ago. Hypocrite used to be such a big word to you. It doesn't seem to mean anything to you now. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, again, my grandfather, uh, he was talking to me about going to church, him and my grandmother. And I said, I'm not going to church. I've been to church. There's a bunch of hypocrites in there. And my grandma looked at me and said, oh, there's no hypocrites in the bars you play at every weekend. That's fine. So it's like, oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I guess point taken. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> That's brutal. Is that her voice on your record a long time ago, your grandmother's voice? Yeah, on Scarecrow. And, you know, it's Dark Stormy? Nah, that's her, right? Yeah, yeah, that's her. Uh, that's she lived to be 100 years old. That, that record, Scarecrow, is what got me through my sophomore year of college, man. I, I had the vinyl on this, and I had this boombox that had a record player. I used to listen to it all day long. 
for some reason i you know i grew up as far from that experience as one could but there are truths on Where'd that record i grew up, up in, i grew up in new york you know and and uh but there was something about as you're growing up as i was and uh, having an understanding of this different part of the world you know and i remember staring at that record and looking at george green's name and trying to understand what that meant this guy you were suddenly right it was all it was all fascinating i'm sure you remember the way you would read albums too when you were young how much they meant to you when when you know your first coming of age in a way and i and i wonder about that john about how you feel about having that role in people's lives like i'm a 55 year old man you know but the records that meant that much to me when i was from 15 to 25 you know they still mean so much and those artists if they keep trying mean that much like do you do you hold on to the fact that that it does mean so much to to so many of us does it matter to you well um uh, it matters somehow but not in the way that you're inferring that it right. would uh i don't placate anybody yeah i don't placate my audiences you know i don't placate you know, I don't do very many interviews. I don't placate the in, the person's interviewing me. I I just I can't do that. I can't I can't feel like I'm trying to sell something. Yes. You know, I have nothing for sale. Uh, if you like the songs, great. If you don't, then don't listen to them. I mean, I've said at my shows, you know, I quit playing in arenas, much to the dismay of. <laughs> my management and other people i said i can't play in front of drunk people anymore i just can't do it i can't i can't start a song and have some fucking guy screaming out in the back of the thing drunk this fight's busting out which always happens in those arenas you know people are just out of control and i uh i just said i'm, I'm not going to do it anymore i i just can't do it and so i walked i walked away from a shit pile of money you know, and walked away from uh, uh, becoming a human jukebox. Uh, but at the same time, see, I still feel like I owe it to somebody to keep these songs alive and keep playing them. Uh, and that's the reason I go on tour is because I, I, I'm paying back a debt. You know, whoever sent me these songs expected me to do it, and so I'm doing it. But I'm not doing it... Uh, particularly for the general public. I'm just not. I'm not for the general public anymore, uh, nor do I want to be part of the general public. I don't like public transportation. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just don't, you know, I don't need to be walking amongst the people. I have become more of an observer of life than a liver of life. Well, that's, me that's a, I mean, that's a very writerly sort of a, an approach, obviously, right? I guess. Suppose. Why? But basically, all I do is paint. <laughs> yeah, know? sure. It's both things. An artist, an, an artist's way of life. Well, I get, of course, that you wouldn't pander to your to your audience, right? And that and that you've kind of willfully whittled some of the those people who came along for the ride for whatever reasons you've whittled them away but i guess what i'm asking is do you get any satisfaction 
from the fact? And the answer might be no, I don't give a fuck, but I'm wondering if you do get any sense. Look, I think about this as an artist too. When I, I have people talk to me about my first movie all the time. Like constantly they'll bring up the first movie. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years, but it means something. I still get like, okay, well, I, I understand why that mattered to you. I remember who I was when I wrote it and I, I get it. Like, does, does the fact that these songs really matter to people give you any kind of satisfaction? Uh, for many years during the 90s, it, it gave me zero satisfaction. But as I get older, uh, I start realizing that, that you know, it's, it's hard for an individual. I don't know about you, but uh, it's hard for an individual to accept the responsibility of I made a difference in somebody's life. Yes, yes. Because, uh, you know, it's a fucking song. <laughs> it's yeah. just a fucking song it's meant to entertain perhaps dance to and uh a friend of mine john prine and yes. i used to laugh Sorry. about you know would it be all right if somebody would just once listen to the lyrics to our songs what do you think somebody could just one time sit down and all the people in the world just one fucking person sit down and listen to the lyrics uh but uh, you know uh it all goes back to the Dick Clark show. I had a good beat and he's easy to dance to. Yeah, well, but but you and Prine are two people who people do. I mean, I understand the joke, of course, but like, you know, I mean, John, I, 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 you know, I just sang back to you the thing your grandma sang that was an intro to a song on a record you made 38 years ago, and I didn't go listen to it. I haven't put that record on in six months. I, I didn't listen to it to prepare for this. Like that's how deep the shit does get into the people who care. And while you say it's just a song, when you make art, it it is an agent, or or I've always felt art is an agent to connect, to change people's interiority a little bit. Do you do you not see yeah, it that way? Only- I've I've never I've never wanted to change anything. I've never wanted to hang on any crosses. Or jump up on any soapboxes, anything like that. The uh, the art of being an artist for me is to be surprised with the art when it's done. If it's a painting, oh, I'm surprised. Sometimes I'll uh, I'll write a song and uh, put it down and not find it for three or four weeks, and then I'll pick it up and go, wow. Did I write that? When did I write that? Yeah. No, I never really wanted to felt like it was my job to change anybody's life or, you know, uh, I had a girlfriend once that said, you know, John, and she was a famous actress and she said, we've been to the moon and we don't need to go back. And I could not disagree with her. Well, and I thought that's, that's a good point, you know, because you find out there's nothing out there. Well, but I, all right. So just knowing you're a guy who lies to strangers, the only thing I think is maybe, or, or that makes me think a little bit that there's a little bullshit is that like you put a record like Scarecrow out, you right. don't, you have some awareness of the fact that you're calling out a fucked up system that you're pointing the world, rain on the scarecrow, blood on the plow, that you're, uh, 
you're using your play. You know, you were a gigantic rock star in that moment when you made that record. And that's the title of the record. I'm, you know what the cover of that record was? And it's like, aren't you in some way using the art? Not, not in the moment of creation. I get that the moment of creation is a moment of not giving a fuck about the external. But, but dude, that, that, that record starts a movement that you then own that movement with Farm Aid. Like, is, is, isn't that true? Am I, am I wrong? To be perfectly frank with you, I had never thought of it in that fashion until you said it. Fascinating. Never. Never thought of it in that fashion. Uh, would never assume that I started a movement of any kind. I uh, have always, uh, I think I wrote it in a song many years ago, you know, I'll work at something if I believe in the cause. Yeah. And and that's about all the, I could never be so presumptuous to think that I started any movement. Uh, uh, only perhaps I have written some songs that uh, have entertained and periodically, sometimes, touch somebody in some way. But other than that, that's all the credit I can give myself for uh, anything that I've ever done. Uh, because I was there when it was going down. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> I was there when it was happening. So the songs to me are totally mean totally different things to you that, than they do to you, you know. Like uh, like on the new record, I mean, there were, I mean, I'll give you the best example. On Lonesome Jubilee, I made a record yes. called Lonesome Jubilee. Yes. And uh, I spent that entire record, I'm surprised that record even got made, arguing with Don Gaiman, who was yes. co-producing me, uh, with him about, the instrumentation that I was putting on the record. He did not want that stuff on that record. He, you know, and that's what I remember of that record. It was like a constant battle. Of the accordion and violin. You mean the accordion and violin? And harmonica. Yeah, accordion and violin. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, all of that stuff. He just didn't. It's like, why are you doing this? I mean, you know, you just had like the greatest record ever with Scarecrow and now you're changing it. Why are you doing this? And I mean, it was a fucking constant battle with this guy. And I don't think we made a record together ever since because he, it was just, he just made it so, I don't know, uncomfortable. He was a wonderful engineer, but he just really had no uh, idea or vision on, you know, on progressing uh, as, as an artist. And he just didn't get it. You know, he was a technical guy and, uh, he ended up making some pretty good records on his own, but I could tell by listening to the records that it was just, you know, mimicking what he had learned with us, which is okay. You know, you know I, mean, I, uh, all, I, I know Don and it. I, I know Don Gaiman and I really like him personally a lot. And, uh, but I, and I've, it's always kind of broken my heart that you guys couldn't, you know, he went on and made that REM record and then the Hootie record and the Tracy Chapman record, uh, and had success and and you felt like though that that tension and i always thought don was you know a pretty beautiful cat meaning he's not a bullshit artist and a record business like i like the fact that at least he'd argue with you john as opposed to just bad mouthing you to someone else and 
bullshitting you to your face, you know. Uh, but well, but that's not well, your interpretation of it is not exactly spot on in my mind. And don't get me wrong, if I saw Don, I would be polite to him and he'd be polite to me. And uh, we owe each other a lot. I totally get it. But I'm just saying that <clears throat> once again, um, I can't take uh, I can't take direction. Right, but and I think where you were starting to where you were starting to go is you were saying you know what we we imbue this stuff with this magic, and you were there when you were fighting to just get what you heard in your head right, and you weren't thinking about yeah. the effect it was going to have at all, right? No, I didn't care. I didn't care about that. I I, I didn't care about that. I didn't care about you know. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's not that I didn't care, but it was not the the main motivating uh, part of making those making that record that way. You know, I was, you know, I don't know about you, but I was tired of guitar solos way back a long time ago. <laughs> right. So, oh my God, here comes a guitar solo. Wow. Okay. We've seen it. You know, we've heard it. Oh, we've of course. Man, I remember when you brought Lisa Germano into your band and it was just as exciting as when Bruce had Clarence. It was a total change up. No doubt about it. Um, a, like a, a big Lisa, deal. Li yeah. Lisa is, was such a, a piece of clay. I mean, she was just so young and so, uh, you know, uh, a whole person when that violin went up underneath her chin. I mean, you know, uh, her personal life was sometimes in tatters, but boy, you put that violin up underneath her chin and it was magic. She was absolute magic, total magic. It really like was. everything. Yeah, like everything else, you know, uh, I've had members of the band who, you know, uh, when you're a band leader, that's another thing that you contend with is some of these people start thinking that they're the band. That you, they, you can't make it without them. I mean, you know, I had a guitar player that thought he was the band. And so he had to go out on his own to find out that he wasn't. Well, yeah, how do you, I mean, how do you think about that or process it? Like, obviously, you know, Billy Joel went through it with Liberty and you went through it with Kenny, who, you know, reading the book, it was fascinating to me to find out which record Kenny didn't play on and he admitted it, you know, but then what he did play on. And he was such an identifiable part of well, your band. You know, and your... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, I said it to Andy York yesterday. Yeah. You know, I said, listen, this new, the next, we're already talking about the next record. And I'm just saying, you know, in my head, the next record is going to be this instrument. And you're the guy that's going to play this instrument. And, you know, I intend to make that instrument as prominent as we made Kenny Aronoff's drums. Huh. Because, you know, uh, I love Kenny, but he never was as good on anybody else's records as he was mine. Uh, and uh, uh, it was because, you know, I I wrote Hurt over him. You know, I have talked to Kenny and people, he'll go into a session and people go, play the same thing you played on, you know, one of Mellencamp songs. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, we never did that. He, you know? he told me an incredible story, John, that puts you in a very good light. He told me that, and you may remember this differently, but he told me that when he was playing on hurt so good that he was playing it too fancy 
And you told him to play it opposite handed because you wanted it to sound more rudimentary and basic. And he said that you freed him and changed him forever as a drummer for the better in that moment. And do you remember it that way? Uh, I don't know that I freed him as a drummer, but I sure did fucking quiet him down with all this over the planet. <laughs> because Kenny was a jazz drummer, you know, and uh, when he joined the band. And uh, uh, it was hard to break him of that. And if you listen to him play on other stuff, sometimes, you know, you'll get like, whoa, Kenny. Boom, boom, crack, my friend. Boom, boom, crack. How did you never make that an album title? That's such a Mellencamp early, like early 90s album title, Boom, Boom, Crack. Uh, How uh, do you miss, do you ever let yourself fall prey to nostalgia. Like, do you ever, does any part of you ever wish you could get together with Larry and Kenny and Gaiman and rec- recreate whatever was going on in the Belmont Mall with you guys? Or no. do you just move no. on? You just move no. on. Uh, once you leave the band, you're out of the band. That simple. And everybody knows it. You know, once you, once you, leave the band, you're out of the band. There's no coming back. There's no, you know, I mean, I've worked with Kenny. He's come in and played on a couple of tracks, uh, but I've never worked with Larry and I'll I'll probably never work with Gaiman again. Uh, Now it's, you know, there just comes a time like, you know, in a relationship that's like, okay, uh, there's no laps left. We've lapped them all. So, so that's it. See you later. Right. And I guess that's the way in which it goes back to what I said a little bit ago. I'm going to be like, HUD. you know, I'm just going to be push my hand. I guess that's also the way, John, that's also the way like. uh, You have to not think about what like the wishes of your fans might be. It's got to be what you want as an artist, which is to move forward, because. Yeah, right. I remember if, 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 if it was up to the fans, I would still be, you know, Still, they would still want me to do. Can you do her so good? <laughs> like, right. No, I can't. You know. Yes, yeah, so as a, a fan, you as a as a fan, I want both. As a fan, I think you want both, right? I want you to make this album exactly as you did because it's what I need now. Uh, but yeah, would it be fun as fuck to go see you play in a shed, and there were Kenny and Larry? Yeah, that'd be really fun for the fans. You know what I mean? But I get why for you, it'd be a pain in the ass. It totally makes sense. Well, you know, I see I see other bands do it. You know, I see, you know, other bands who, who've been together for a long time and I see them playing in the sheds. Uh, and what is their motivation? Money. Yeah. I'm not going to be motivated satisfy the fans so I can make money. I, you know, I've been fortunate enough with money. I got enough money. I don't need any more. Uh, I don't care about it. Never did. Uh, so wh- why would I even entertain it? And here's another thing, Brian. I- I'm not nostalgic. I'm not nostalgic at all. Uh, I'm, I've never been nostalgic and 
you know, I wasn't one of these guys that, you know, that talk about, you know, school days. And school days for school days, they're long gone. And every year I have a, a little dinner for some kids I hung around with when we were in high school. And every year the, the group gets smaller. Yeah, people are, and uh, um, that's about as nostalgic as I get. I get a little nostalgic over uh, girls sometimes, sure. uh, but other than that, no. Yeah, that's really. Because I've, yeah. I've had I've had wonderful relationships with women. Uh, really felt blessed. I felt blessed that I've known the the girls that I've known. Again, here we are with John Houston, married five times. No, of course, my, my hero. John Houston's my hero. hero. Yeah, man, yeah, I. I watch that movie White Hunter Black Heart about every three or four years. I watch it. Well, uh, I've read his book. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. But, uh, well, did you read that the, the the book that uh, White Hunter Black Heart is based on? Was written by that writer, the guy who's in it. You know, Peter Vertel about going and making African Queen with Houston. It's it's worth it if you if you haven't gotten to it. It's it's good. Well, I just, I, you know, I just, uh, I just uh, uh, admire uh, Houston's guts yeah. and his uh, his moxie and his ability to uh, keep it himself. Keep it, not you know, I'm not saying this for well, but keep it, keep it to his vision and not be pushed around by somebody. I'm sure he was, but not too much, you know. You're talking about not allowing the, the either the business or the commercial considerations or nostalgia or weakness to let him compromise at what, at what was most important, which is making the work the way it feels like it needs to be made. Yeah, exactly. You said it much better than me, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said it. I'm just trying to translate, dude. I'm just trying to translate it. A, friend, uh, a girl I know, a real, <clears throat> a real famous singer. Uh, she came and I, I helped her out on a couple songs quietly, you know, for no credit or anything. Yeah. I didn't want any credit for it. And that uh, she wrote a book, and she goes, you know, John Mellencamp helped me with a couple songs and he's the most inarticulate fucking guy in the world. And you kind of got to read between the lines because he doesn't really, he mumbles and he doesn't speak in full sentences. Uh, but on paper, he seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, okay. I'm glad you said that because I got to spend two afternoons with your old friend, George Green in, I guess the late eighties or early nineties. Um, when I was like, still before I wrote my first script with Dave and I was in the record business and what an art talk about a guy who was articulate and was able to talk about the world and feelings and all of it. That guy blew my mind and he was an inspiration to me, John, you know, as I was trying to flip my life and become a writer instead of being an A&R guy, George was like one of the people where I was like, how did this guy become a writer? 
And I, he, he entertained me like twice. We talked. So can you talk a little bit about what you got out of that together and, and what, what happened that, that, that put you together to write together? Uh, George and I grew up together. I, I knew George from, we went to church together as little boys. We went to the Nazarene church in Seymour, Indiana together. And, uh, I mean, I'm talking like seven, eight years wow. old. Yeah. And uh, we didn't hang around together much, you know, in junior high or anything like that. But we knew each other and we liked each other. And uh, uh, I knew his parents. Uh, you know, I knew his sisters. Uh, I knew his family. He knew my family. So we were pretty well connected. And both of us found ourselves in the early 70s after uh, college, after he quit and after I graduated from like a junior college, both of us found ourselves uh, in Seymour. And I was uh, working as a telephone installer for not very long before I got fired. And he was bread. He was delivering just a bunny bread man. Right, the, the bunny bread man. Yeah, you know, he would go around to stores and deliver bunny bread to the stores all around. And, that, and we just looked at each other and just kind of went, you know, because uh, there wasn't that many guys left to see him where everybody was, had moved away. or So him and I were kind of, me and him and a couple other guys were kind of forced together uh, just by, we knew each other because we were the same age. And George always liked to talk about his novels that he was writing. And I'd always give him shit. And I always go, George, you never want to talk about a novel. Huh. You don't think you spend a fucking mad. How do you expect to write a fucking novel? That's funny. And he was like, this is going to be different. <laughs> I said, you know, maybe we should like try to shorten it to like song lyrics. That's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should try, like, you know, you have the attention span to write some good lyrics because I, I see some of the sentences that you've written in this novel that you're never going to finish. Because his attention span was not long enough to complete, a you know, a, an entire novel. He would lose interest and he'd be on to something else, you know, because once he had it worked out in his head, it was done. It, oh, never really made it, it never made it to paper or half of it made it to paper. Uh, so he would start, you know, sending me poems, and then I would dissect the poem. And uh, generally, the way it worked uh, between George and I, George would write like the verse, and I was, I, you know, even before I knew how to write songs, I was always really good at at uh, coming up with melodies. You know, I can come up with a melody anytime sure. I want, and and it's not. Uh, generally not too trite. Uh, but George would write the verses and then I would write the choruses. And that's how we had hit records. Uh, uh, you know, I wrote Hurt So Good uh, with George. I was in the fucking shower and just started singing that. I sang that chorus. And George was working for me at the time. It was like an assistant. And I said, okay, here's the chorus. Hurt So Good, come on. And then he wrote, when I was a young boy, and then I, and then I would 
you know, and then I would write the next line and he'd write the next line. And Amazing. We laughed. We laughed about it. We laughed at how silly it was. But at the same time, I was playing bars and I goes, it's really not that silly. I mean, you know, the line, you know, as silly as it sounded and juveniles, sometimes love don't feel like it should, really was kind of a, uh, a, a very uh, good line because I would see, you know, in these bars. Now, see, George never played anywhere, so he never went anywhere. He never left his fucking house. He came to my right. house. I was, but I was always all over the place. And uh, I would tell him, I'd say, man, you know, when the fucking bars close down, People would just run up to each other. Total strangers would go, you want to fuck? You want to fuck? You want to fuck? And I'm just like, it amazed me that, you know, and I spent <laughs> my entire life. So that's where the line, sometimes love don't feel like it should. It's just like, the, 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 you know, it's, I guess it, this ain't love, but it ain't bad, I guess. And these people would do it every night, all over the country, all over the world. that Saturday Night Live, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I found a way to get a VHS, because it's not online, of Ain't Even Done With The Night and Hurt So Good when you played it on SNL. I remember being a kid and watching it, John. I remember that was it. You're my, you know, I, I, I was like, that guy, I, I could tell, is going to become a superstar. Did you know when you did those two songs that night, could you tell that something had changed? Brian. I don't even remember that night. Oh, come on. Come on. I don't. No, listen, I don't. The, the fact that you just told me that I did those two songs together on Saturday Night Live, my brain went, you did? Ha! I did? <laughs> That's fucking incredible. That's, well, there you go. See, I, you're moving have, forward. You're, you're moving here, forward. Here, here's, here's, all, here's all I remember about playing on Saturday Night Live the first time. I had a pair of jeans on that had a hole in the knee. And that was before that became popular. And I remember what I had on. I had on a pair of blue jeans and I had a pair of penny loafers and white socks. And I remember my guitar player's dad who ran uh, Lexington, which was the drug rehabilitation place at the time, you know, Man with Golden Arm, you know, Frank Sinatra had just gotten out of Lexington. That's where they sent on the heroin addicts. Anyway, Mike's dad was the fucking warden of that place, which is why Mike's so fucked up. <laughs> he grew Jesus up. Christ. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he grew up in that environment. Uh, anyway, uh, his dad sent a message to me through Mike going, John, you can't go on TV looking like that. Neatness counts. Come on, you, if you're going to make it, you can, you, can, you know. <laughs> so that's what you were thinking about while you're playing Hurt So Good. You're thinking about, uh, fuck you, Mike's dad. But uh, well, no, yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't, no, I wasn't thinking about it. I didn't think about what I had on at the point. And then, because uh, that's just the way I dressed at the time. And, uh, you know, it was the next couple of days that his dad sent that message to me. You boys need to fucking clean up your act. You look like a bunch of hippies. That is hilarious. Uh, I think I think the word he used was Mavros. Mavros hippies. You talk about a bunch of Mavros hippies. Oh, that is really <laughs> hilarious. And like the fact that that 
that's what you were focused on and, and not the fact, you know, or now that you remember, you don't remember those are the songs you played. I remember the next time when you played Crumbling Down, but you were already super famous by the next time you did SNL. You know, you did, I think you did uh, 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 Crumbling Down and, uh, but, and maybe not Pink House or maybe Pink House has followed it. Um, all right, last couple of things. How did... Um, Brian, Brian, can I tell you something? Yeah. If you hadn't told that, even this part, I wouldn't remember. I, I find that amazing. I feel like I've, I've visited friends playing on SNL probably five times, and I remember, I remember every time I was there. I have a weird memory, though. Like, I, I remember making all the moves. I don't know. For some reason, I remember this shit. Um, but, you know, you're moving forward, and I'm more nostalgic than you. I try to, like, I try to do the thing of hold on to 16, like, wherever I am. I'm, I'm trying to be present and then to kind of hold on to it uh, if I can. But how did – um? so before, John, you were talking about how there was this little club um, in the 70s who were the cool cats – who wrote about music and you weren't in the club. And obviously the great John Landau was one of the key guys in that group. And no, he was, he was the leader. Yes. I mean, you he know, was the leader. New York, you know, New York Times wrote something and, and a lot of people just fell in line. Uh, I didn't really understand that at the time, but you know, I do now. Yeah. But, uh, but John, uh, but, so this is what I was going to say, but clearly something's come all the way around because you know, Bruce sings on three songs on the record and Wasted Days is one of the all-time great things. Uh, and you guys did it together. And obviously, like, you know, John and Bruce definitely talked about it, no doubt about it, if we know anything about well, their whole history. I, so I have, I have to tell you, from what I've heard, they did not talk about it. John, what do you mean? What do you mean? Landau didn't know Bruce. Listen, Bruce is his own guy. Of course. Bruce does what the fuck he wants to do. And, uh, and I think John's his partner for sure. But I, you know, I can't speak for Bruce. I don't know, but, uh, uh, I know that my manager and Landau have spoken and Landau said he didn't know that he, that Bruce was even coming here to work on the record. Uh, that's amazing. Um, I, I think John is such a smart guy. I really, I like him a lot, but I am, I did think there was something about, the fact that that Bruce is doing this with you, that if you were the kind of person who cared about righting the wrongs or the way that you were considered, it is a pretty nice full, full circle moment, don't you think? Uh, Bruce and I have talked about that. And uh, my conclusion, and like, again, I would never want to speak for Bruce, but my conclusion was it was just fucking lazy journalism. You know, uh, <clears throat> how do you pigeonhole something? And I'm trying to write three reviews this week for three different magazines. And, you know, what am I going to say about this record? Well, this guy is not considered the hippest guy in the world. So, you know, we'll do this and we'll compare him to that. It's just lazy journalism. I mean, and I have to look at the people who wrote those things, you know, where the fuck are they now? You know, because the winner of the race is still running. Yes. Well, so, both uh, you guys are still running. Uh, how did it come to pass, to Bruce? How did it come to pass? And, and how did you play Bruce Wasted Days? Did you play it for him in person? Did you send it to him? What happened? Uh, can't remember. Uh, 
I think that uh, I should have, uh, we became very friendly uh, a few years ago, and I think I just called him up and said, you want to come play on, the, on my new record? He said, yeah. And he got on the plane and he came. And uh, he just kind of, I think he just heard it for the first time. As my recollection is, it might, I might be wrong, that he might not have heard anything until he got there. Uh, Bruce was like my big brother, you know. Uh, he kind of uh, gives me a look sometimes like, ah. <laughs> and it makes me laugh. I mean, what a, what a great thing. I'll just say, you know. I think for your for your fans, when we were kids, the thought that that Bruce would be there for you that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool thing. All right, very last question, John. I was thinking about this Dylan line as I was listening to your album, where he says, uh, "I'm not not dark yet." What does he say? Uh, uh, I ain't looking for nothing in anyone's eyes, and it feels like your record. When I heard that, and I was younger. It really made me sad to think that the, a great artist would stop trying to get anything from anyone else. When I hear this record, I do feel a little of the same thing, you know, in Wasted Days when you say, like, who am I going to waste time with? So where do you find hope? And where's the listener supposed to find hope as they listen to you, at, you know, in, in your early 70s, thinking about this stuff and about human connection? Uh, where, where well, is there hope? The, 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 the truth of the matter is, is that, uh, that, that there is hope, uh, but it ain't free. Okay. You know, it's not God given that you're going to have, you're going to find hope, hope, happiness, all of these things have to be worked on and, and. It, like if I laugh out loud once a day, I've had a good day. You know, I mean, I, I have to yeah. bristle and laugh when I hear somebody go, I just want to be happy. <laughs> well, no shit. <laughs> no shit. Who doesn't get in line? That's a fucking long ass line. Uh, you know, happiness is, is not God given just because you're a human, you get to be happy. I mean, you know, well, where did you get the idea that, that, that God was going to make you happy? And, you know, what did you expect life was to hand you? No, anything that any, any moments of happiness that you have, you had to work for and it came with inside you. Listen, we are all in solitary confinement inside of our own skin. And that's all there is to it. And that's all Bob was saying uh, when, when you repeat that line to me. Not that he's not, you know, looking for something from somebody else. It's just like, it's being decoded inside his little prison that he's built for himself. Steve King said it to me best. He said, we all dig our own fucking trench and then we just decorate it. And that's it. Fuck, that's man. Life. Fuck. That's I life. wish you, John, I wish you get two laughs today, man. I want you to get two laughs today out loud. So it'll be an excellent. Well, you've, already given, you've already given me a couple. So I'm done. I'm doing good so far. Good, man. All right, John Mellencamp, folks, go get the fucking album. John, this is uh, this this really matters to me. I know you won't remember this tomorrow, but to me, this was meaningful. So thanks a lot, dude. Take care of yourself. <laughs>